I'm going to get started just a little bit differently. Some of you don't know this about the story Houston, but maybe you should. The story Houston is part of a larger tradition. So the story Houston is part of a 300-year movement called Methodism. And Methodism um, is a word that's maybe a little dated. It doesn't really mean that much anymore to a lot of people. But um, it, it's really been a movement over the last three centuries that has shaped the world and changed millions of lives. Um, not only by the denominations that have spun off of Methodism, but by some of the greatest schools and universities and hospitals that the world has ever seen. Millions of lives transformed, and all of them can be traced back to the same man, to the vision of one man named John Wesley. But as they say, behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. I'm just kidding. That's not, <laughs> that's not what they say. They say behind every great man is what? A great woman, or beside every great man is a great woman. And the great woman beside John Wesley wasn't his wife. It was his mother, Susanna Wesley. Her maiden name was Ansley. Susanna Ansley was born in London, England in 1669. She was the 25th child of 25 in her family. And uh, she grew up the daughter of a very well-known, popular preacher. At um, 19 years of age, she met and married another budding theologian and preacher named Samuel Wesley. And they were married when she was 19, and they had 19 kids of their own. Um, but uh, 10 of those kids um, didn't make it. And so um, they lost nine in infancy or uh, childbirth. And one was um, accidentally uh, lost when a, a, a maid um, smothered the child uh, accidentally one night. And so it was a lot of a lot of tragedy in Susanna Wesley's life. She was, however, an extraordinary woman. And as part of this um, series, I thought we should kind of dig into her story a little bit before this series ends. Um, something to know about Susanna and Samuel's family life is that it was kind of a roller coaster. It wasn't the stable life that a lot of people, I think, imagine when they think of these heroic families of the past. Um, Samuel Wesley was a good man, but he had a lot of big problems. He didn't have a lot of success in ministry. He was more of a sensitive, intellectual type. And his rural congregation didn't really appreciate his heady approach to ministry. And this is evidenced by the fact that members of his parish tried to burn their house down <laughs> twice. And the second time, they were successful. They burned the Wesley house down and uh, in the middle of the night, no less, and the family barely escaped unscathed. Um, Susanna Wesley was nine months pregnant when the fire struck and she uh, somehow managed to get herself and two little girls out of the house safely, even though her legs were really badly burned in the process. Um, a, a family maid went into the nursery to grab young Charles, who was five years old at the time, and little, um, I'm sorry, Charles was one year old at the time, and John, who was five. So John was supposed to follow the maid and baby Charles out the door of the nursery, out of the house. But when John looked outside that nursery and saw those flames, he was like, nah, I'm going to stay. And he got trapped 
inside the nursery. His father, Samuel, tried to rescue him several times, and he failed. He couldn't do it, and the staircase was collapsing, so he had to get outside. And when he collapsed on the ground outside, Susanna got on her knees next to him, and there together they prayed that God would welcome their baby boy into heaven. About that same time, John Wesley was five years old, um, got up off the floor and went to a window in the nursery. And he looked out the window and he saw some neighbors and he said, help, help. And one neighbor couple heard the boy's voice from the window. And he, uh, the husband put the wife on his shoulders and vaulted her up. And the wife reached in and got John out of the house just in time to save his life. Susanna later said it was that night that she knew that God had a special plan for her baby, John Wesley. And she was right. Now, surprisingly, I'm not sure how many families you can say this about, but surprisingly, arson wasn't the biggest problem <laughs> that the Wesleys faced. It was financial stress. Um, John's father, Susanna's husband, he just, Samuel, wasn't very good with money. In fact, he was terrible with money. He often uh, wound up in jail. He was arrested and jailed many times for debts that he could not um, pay. They were perpetually in debt. Um, he spent their entire life savings on a book that he was writing, which is kind of a typical kind of a story, right, for these intellectual heady types. He, he had this dream of just writing a book, and so he withdrew from everything he was supposed to be doing to write this book, spent every dime they had to write this book, and the book never made a dime his whole life, and he emptied his family's coffers for it. Now, ironically enough, it was a book on Job, the book of Job in the Old Testament, which is kind of, he's kind of this image of human suffering in the Bible. And, and that's the, that was the subject of Samuel Wesley's book that he wasted away his family's savings on. That financial stress brought them to their knees. And many people think that was the cause of Samuel and Susanna's year-long separation. They were separated for over a year, actually, while the kids were still at home. But that never stopped Susanna from homeschooling all those babies. She taught them every day. From 9 to noon and from 2 to 5, it was like a strictly regimented schedule. She ran that household with the precision and consistency of a military commander. Every day the same. They just kept grinding away. At school, um, one letter that Susanna later wrote to John sort of evidenced her attitude toward um, raising and schooling her kids. She said, rising out of their places, she's talking about the kids, rising out of their places or going out of the room was not permitted unless for good cause. And running into the yard, garden, or street without leave was always esteemed a capital offense. That's a little bit of uh, British humor for you from uh, Susanna. Wesley, and you kind of get a sense for who she was. One summer when Samuel was away, he was actually back in London, and he was testifying on behalf of a friend of his who was on charge, put up on charges of heresy. And Susanna was once again alone with the kids, and, and, uh, and Samuel had put another preacher in charge of giving the sermons. And Susanna did not care for this preacher very much. Um, this preacher, according to Susanna, only always wanted to talk about money. Don't you hate it when preachers only want to talk about money? And Susanna said, that's all he talks about is money, money, money. And so 
every Sunday after getting home from church, church, like Susanna would put on her own worship service in the kitchen of her house. And she and her kids would pray together. They would sing hymns together. And then Susanna would deliver the message. And by the end of the summer, only a few dozen people were going to real church. And over 200 people were packing into Susanna Wesley's house to hear her preach. Standing room only in the Wesley house to hear Susanna Wesley preach the gospel. She was an extraordinary, extraordinary woman. When we look back, you can't help but ask, how did she do it? How did this woman who experienced so much trauma, so much loss, so many reasons to give up, how did she not fold under that pressure? How did she keep it together? What was the fuel in her tank, you know, when her husband left or when her babies died or when the congregation tried to burn their house down and then the second time or, you know, every single day for that matter when she slaved away at the two most thankless jobs in the universe, teacher and mom. What kept her going? Susanna Wesley would say very matter-of-factly that it was prayer. Because every single day after getting the kids started on their lessons, Susanna would go to the same chair in her kitchen and she would sit there. And then she would raise her apron over her head. And then she said, it was just me and Jesus. And she would pray. And prayer is what kept her going. Prayer is what empowered and enabled her to change the world. We've been talking about women who changed the world for, this is the fifth week now. In particular, we've been talking about Jesus' encounters with women. And um, the stories that we've told so far are very important stories, but they really just scratch the surface. The women that we've taught about so far, they are only a small sampling of all the women that Jesus loved during his life on earth. All the women whose names he took the time to know, whose stories he knew, the women he empowered, the women he called not just sister or daughter, he called them disciples. And there were so many examples of these, the first, uh, the first evangelist in the gospel, by evangelist I mean someone who preaches the gospel or shares the gospels. The very first one was a woman, not just any woman, the woman at the well who was a Samaritan, first of all, which was not good in Bible times, according to Jesus' people, the Israelites. Samaritans were the bad guys. But she was also, uh, had been married four times, not sure what happened there, but the fifth guy that she was with now was not her husband. Y'all, Some of y'all know that story, and she was... Jesus' first evangelist, and it was her testimony that changed every life in her village. They all decided to follow him because they found her testimony to be credible. The first non-Jewish Christian, as we said a couple of weeks ago, was that woman who was a pagan, the Canaanite woman who came and begged Jesus to heal her daughter. She was a pagan, entirely wrong religion. And Jesus invited her into his kingdom. You can see now on the, the screen a list of all the women, all the women who are named in the Gospels as disciples. Some of them, we are told, even bankrolled Jesus' ministry. Like from Luke chapter 8, um, verses 1 to 3, we see some examples here where it says, after this, Jesus traveled about uh, from one town and village to another, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons came out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them, Jesus and the twelve, out of their own means. They were bankrolling the ministry. First of all, can we just take a little side trip here and talk about, talk about this Joanna person? Like, what a hero this Joanna person is. Did you see who Joanna was? The wife of Chusa? The steward or manager of King Herod's household? King Herod was, he was a big deal. He was a nightmare for Jesus and his people. King Herod was the one that called for John the Baptist to be beheaded. And that was Jesus' cousin and best friend at the time. You know, King Herod was, he was greedy and bloodthirsty. He was, his father had called for the, the uh, massacre of the innocents, the baby boys, two and under. Like, it was a terrible regime, a terrible family. And here Jesus sort of had an inside track. It's believed among scholars that Joanna is the reason why Luke, the gospel writer, had such inside information. If you ever read Luke and Acts, he knows things about Herod's household that none of the other gospel writers know. That no one else should know. Right? He knows things about her. He got close to Joanna. And, and, and it shows. And it seems like Jesus, even though Herod had everything in his favor, Jesus maintained an upper hand in part because of Joanna. Um, this first century undercover special ops superhero, Joanna, who I, my imagination runs wild thinking what her life must have been like. So she's one of my heroes, but the woman whose name appears most often and most prominently among the lists of female disciples of Jesus clearly is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, it would be impossible to finish this series without focusing on her. Mary Magdalene is one of the most mysterious characters in Bible history. Um, Even secular scholars agree that she existed in history. She was a historical figure, but we know very little about her. And a lot of the stuff people think they know about Mary Magdalene is not true stuff. Like forever, the Catholic Church um, had sort of in their canon that Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, who we talked about last week, Mary and Martha, they were the same person. They weren't the same person, right? And that was just corrected in like 1969 after all those years of teaching that they were the same person. And if you look at Mary Magdalene as she's portrayed in art, a lot of the art that you see is inspired by a lot of the early sermons about Mary Magdalene, which portrayed her to be some kind of a harlot or some kind of a prostitute even. In, in um, folklore, sort of, she's a, she's a prostitute much of the time. And a lot of the art she's shown very provocatively. Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. There's no reason to believe she was a prostitute. There's no reason to believe she was a harlot. There's just... Um, there's just very little that we actually know about her. We know where she's from because of her name, Mary Magdalene. It wasn't her last name, Magdalene. That just means she was from Magdala, right? That'd be like calling me Eric Texan or Eric Houstonian. Like, that's, that's all that means is that she was from Magdala, which was a fishing village. Um, some of what we know about Mary Magdalene comes from the fact uh, that some things are not said. Like, it doesn't say Mary Magdalene, wife of so-and-so or Mary Magdalene, daughter of so-and-so. She was on her own. Which tells us something by virtue of not telling us anything. It kind of tells us something about her 
life. There's some kind of trauma there, something's missing, because culturally it would have been expected for her to be attached somehow um, to a man. The other thing that we know about her is that when she met Jesus, she was very sick. Um, spiritually sick, maybe physically sick too, um, because it says that Jesus performed uh, uh, or, or cast out uh, seven evil or impure spirits from her. And that could mean any uh, number of things, but she was a sick individual. And Jesus cast out seven demons from her. And from that moment on, he had her loyalty. She was his. And he was hers. And she followed him everywhere that she went, he went. I want you to just try and picture this woman, Mary Magdalene, in history, right? In the flesh, following Jesus around, staying close to him, listening to all of his teachings, becoming one of his disciples, right? It's an amazing story to think about. Uh, and, uh, and, and Jesus, as she grew to trust him, Jesus also grew to trust her. She became one of his most important disciples. So we find out in um, John 20 that Mary Magdalene was the first person to discover the empty tomb. She didn't mean to. She was going to prepare Jesus' body for a proper burial, and she found the tomb was empty. And then she went and told Peter and John. And um, they didn't even see the resurrection coming, even though Jesus had tried to tell them. They just thought somebody had stolen his body. They, they thought... The Romans, or maybe Herod, was adding um, insult to injury, and they'd taken his body away. But then this is what happens next. This is from John chapter 20, and I'll start in verse 11. It's on your study guides. It's on the screens. Now Mary, this is Mary Magdalene, stood outside the tomb crying. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. And so Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. She told them what he had said to her. Wow. Okay. So first of all, a lot of people have wondered, scholars have wondered, why Mary Magdalene couldn't recognize Jesus. Was he a different form? Like, what's the deal? And I think if you know anything about the culture and the context, it really kind of makes sense. Mary Magdalene was in mourning. Her, one of her best friends had died. Her teacher had died. And so she was in mourning, and the mourning clothes would have called for her to be covered head to toe in black fabric. So it was early, right, in the day, and, and not a lot of sunlight maybe, and she was also covered in black fabric, and she's crying, so it was very difficult to see who Jesus was. So imagine her standing outside of the, temple, outside of the tomb, the empty tomb, not knowing where Jesus was, weeping, mourning, not only the trauma of seeing him on the cross, but now his body's gone and she's in mourning and there's this weird gardener standing around behind her. Just imagine all of that and all she can think about is Jesus under her veil. And then he says her name. He says her name. And she knows. Right away she knows who he is. And she remembers who she is. 
And there's something that's unspoken in that scripture that it's not said, but it happens. Because Jesus says, Mary, and she says, teacher, and then Jesus says, don't hold on to me. So between teacher and don't hold on to me, Mary has held on to him. She has attacked him. She has clung to him. She has embraced him, which culturally was insensitive at best, inappropriate probably, illegal, definitely. Mary doesn't care. Jesus doesn't care because she is his and he is hers. But he says, Mary, your work here is just beginning. Don't hold on to me. Not yet. Because your work here has just begun. And then he gives her a message to share. Listen, what I want us all to really understand here about Mary Magdalene is that there is no way that her life could have been easy. Her um, life as a woman, in the, a Jewish woman, in a, in a backwater sort of Roman province, on so many levels would have been incredibly difficult, especially without a man to protect her socially. Uh, and Mary Magdalene seems to have been alone in that way. And so she would have been vulnerable and, and in so many ways she would have faced uh, difficulties. Women and girls in those days did not have the same basic rights that men and boys did. A woman's worth was only considered or, or calculated in terms of her contributions to the household. In other words, if you didn't get married, ladies, if you didn't get married, then if you didn't produce children in your marriage, then you were worth less than someone who did. And that's just the way that it was. And so imagine how worthless someone like Mary Magdalene must have felt until she met Jesus. And Jesus changed everything. Before him, before him, life was a struggle in so many ways for women. And girls, in the Jewish tradition that Jesus came from, there's this ancient prayer that rabbis used to pray. And rabbis used to stand in the temple and pray, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So before Jesus, Gentiles, which were heathens in the Jewish worldview, slaves, which were property, they were the same subclass as women. And after Jesus, you had Paul the Pharisee say, in Christ there's no longer male or female, slave or free, Gentile or Jew. Jesus changed everything for people like Mary Magdalene. Why do you think there were so many women following him? This is one of the things that set Jesus' ministry apart. Mary Magdalene was just about as low class as a person could be in that world, in her place. And so was the woman at the well with all those husbands and that boyfriend she was with. So was that Canaanite who was a pagan worshiping all the wrong gods. And so was Jesus' mom, Mary, for that, for, 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 as far as that's concerned. Like Mary was, as far as anyone else could see, an unwed, pregnant teenager. 
You know the rumors she must have faced her whole life. We know about some of these rumors about her sleeping around with some guy and how we know Joseph's not that boy's real daddy. Like she faced those rumors every day. People tried to take her down a rung every day. And Jesus was always surrounding himself with these women. Why? Did he just have a soft space in his heart for women with a reputation or something? I don't think that's it. I think it's because Jesus came to teach them and all of us something true, something about the kingdom of God and the part that we all have to play in it. So I think what this whole series has led up to for us, what every conversation we've had for the last four weeks and today has brought me to conclude is that I, I think it's very important for Jesus that we all know that it doesn't matter who you are or who other people have said you are. It doesn't matter how you feel about yourself or how other people feel about you. It doesn't matter how many medals or trophies you've earned or how much money that you've made or how you've made that money. Even if you feel entirely unworthy, to Jesus, you're worthy. Even if the world says you do not matter, to Jesus, you matter. Even when no one else believes in you, Jesus does. Even when no one else trusts you, Jesus will. Even when you think your past will disqualify you, it doesn't. And when you're afraid, your mistakes will keep you from being forgiven. They won't. I don't care who you are or what your reputation is or how you feel about yourself because Jesus didn't care about those things. You have a part to play in the kingdom of God. You have a sermon to preach with your words with your actions. There's someone today in your sphere of influence who needs to know that they are loved. Listen, Jesus entrusted Mary Magdalene with the most important message the world has ever heard. Jesus is risen. I have seen the Lord. And if he trusted Mary Magdalene, who no one else in her world would trust, he trusts you. He trusts you today to share an equally important message with someone in your life who needs to hear it, that Jesus came and lived and died and rose for them because he loves them. No matter who they are, what they've done, or what the world says about them. So I hope at the end of this series, throughout this week, I hope at some point you go home and you pray. And if you live in a chaotic house, it's too noisy to pray, put an apron on your head or something and just spend some time with you and Jesus and say, Lord, tell me what to say. And Lord, show me who to tell. And like Mary Magdalene, 
I will go. Would you pray with me? Jesus, help us to believe the unbelievable, that we, with our past, our failures, our reputation, our mistakes, that we who feel so unworthy at times, that we who feel voiceless, that we have a sermon to preach, that we have a message to share, that someone in our lives is waiting, waiting desperately to be told that they're loved, to be told that Christ is risen, to be told that we have seen the Lord. Come and see. Help us, Jesus, to be courageous, not just right now in church where it's easy to be courageous, but help us to be courageous out there in the real world with our words and with our actions to receive and accept your invitation to contribute to the kingdom of God. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.